Welcome to the Christian Classical Corner with Jesus the Good Shepherd Anglican Church and the Good Shepherd School Project, where we discuss Christian classical education as a way forward for educating God's children. Greetings, friends in Christ. My name is Margaret Douglas, and I am the headmistress of the Good Shepherd School Project at Jesus the Good Shepherd Anglican Church. Let's talk some classical education. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Welcome. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for joining us for our inaugural show. We at Jesus the Good Shepherd are thrilled to be joining the KKVV family to talk about Christian classical education and how we at the Good Shepherd School Project are working to help families in the valley embark on their Christian classical journeys. Proverbs 22.6 tells us, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And that's what our ministry is all about. Now, we're just a small parish down in the Green Valley area of Henderson, but we do have a lot of folks in our church with huge hearts for education. For quite some time, folks have been looking at our current educational crisis in America and here in the Valley. Children being taught unrealistic nonsense about life, faith, gender, who we are as a country, who we are as humanity. It's become really a dystopian nightmare. And folks at our church, and I'm sure many of you out there, have been desperately praying, Lord, what can we do? How can we help? When answer to that prayer, the Lord made it clear to us that we were to give him what we had, our gifts, our time, our talents and treasures. Give it to him. Let him equip us to begin to serve his children. So we began the Good Shepherd School Project. We believe that God is calling us to use what we have to minister to the children of our church and our community to build better disciples for him. So what is the Good Shepherd School? Well, we're an educational ministry devoted to training our children in the Lord. We're raising up the saints and the martyrs of tomorrow by educating them with Christian classical education today. Now, you might be asking yourself, what is classical education? How does it differ from what we might call regular education in the United States? Well, for one, what we call classical education had another name prior to about 1850. It was just called education. Everyone was educated and trained in this manner. It was regular school. Before the advent of what we now call progressive education, the classical approach was the approach to education. <laughs> Jeremy Tate over at the Classical Learning Test, and I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's a competitor to the SAT and the ACT examinations for classically educated students. He says that we really ought to give classical education another name. We just ought to call it education as it was before the world went insane. <laughs> Love that. Spot on. So very true. So let's talk about some of these hallmarks that make classical education different from what we see in schools today. Classical education has been described in many different ways. One of the definitions that I really like the most is that it's learning the true, the good, and the beautiful by teaching the liberal arts through the great books. 
Now, there's a lot to unpack there, so let's break it down. How do we even define the true, the good, and the beautiful? Well, these concepts have been around for a long time. St. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And these are the things that we should be teaching for. What God has shown us to be His truth, His loveliness, and His excellence. Hillsdale College discusses the concept on their website like this. How do we measure good? Is it defined by the majority? Is it measured by self-satisfaction or personal fulfillment? The good of anything is found in its ability to accomplish what it was created for. To realize the purpose for existence as intended by its maker. Only in this realization can something truly be called good. The good is possible only in the light of truth. Not truth, as it is often defined today, by personal preference or popular consensus, but truth as it is, independent from opinions and emotions. And where goodness and truth exist, there you will find beauty. We were created for a purpose. That purpose is not left to chance or whim, but was determined by our Maker and written into our nature. The purpose is to seek truth in order to discover and to act on what is good and beautiful in this life. Brothers and sisters, I think that is simply a beautiful way of explaining these concepts. And of course, we know that truth, true wisdom and knowledge, all begin in fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So if we are trying to educate children in truth, then that, of course, has to start with the Lord. This is one of the reasons that I always refer to it as Christian classical education, rather than you'll hear sometimes classical Christian education. And some would say that it really doesn't make a difference, and maybe it doesn't. But I personally prefer the emphasis on the Christian. The Christian always has to be our first emphasis if we're training for truth. And that's true even if we're examining non-Christian texts. And we do that sometimes in classical learning, because as St. Paul notes in Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So we can sometimes see a glimmer of divine wisdom in those who don't know the Lord, and we can point out where that is. But we can never examine them from a non-Christian perspective because what we're searching for is God's truth in everything that we do. After all, when we look at that quote from Hillsdale College, we note that the whole purpose of anything is in its ability to accomplish what it was created for. We as human beings were created for the purpose of being in relationship with God. So if we're going to be in relationship with God, we have to be trained up in His ways. Training our children first and foremost to be good people, good as defined by God, 
is the whole point to education. Ecclesiastes 12.13 tells us, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Friends, if this is our whole duty, doesn't it make sense that we make this our primary focus of education? Yeah, I don't think you're going to find that in the curriculum of CCSD. Just an aside, in our public education, we're not really training children for any purpose, at least no stated purpose. When I began to study classical education, I was amazed that one of the first things we were taught was to focus on the purpose of our humanity as the purpose for our educating. Novel concept, right? When I was originally trained as a teacher several decades ago, and we won't get into how many decades ago that was, there was no thought whatsoever given to what the greater purpose of our teaching was for, even the kind of people we were supposed to be helping to form on the other side of the process. It's no wonder children today are so confused. Is it back to the definition of classical education? What exactly are these liberal arts that we're talking about? Why do we want to teach them? It sounds terribly political. It's not, I promise. The liberal arts, they're the knowledge and skills that all free men were to have. The term dates back to ancient times, the Latin root liber, meaning free. Saw a great quote recently from Dr. Patrick Deneen. He's a professor of political philosophy at Notre Dame. And in his recent book, Why Liberalism Failed, he puts it this way. The liberal arts were long understood to be the essential form of education for a free people, especially citizens who aspired to self-government. The emphasis on great texts, which were great not only or even because they were old, but because they contained hard-won lessons on how humans learn to be free, especially free from the tyranny of their own insatiable desires. This has been jettisoned in favor of what was once considered servile education, an education concerned exclusively with money-making and a life of work, hence reserved for those who did not enjoy the title of citizen. Wow, powerful, hey? We who are training our young people to be citizens of heaven called not servant but friend by our Lord, freed from the bondage by him and not slaves to sin, these children should not be given the education of serfs, but the education of free men and women. A Lutheran classical instructor whom I know recently put it to her students this way. Our enemies, the devil, the world, and our own sinful natures do not rest But while our enemies are great, God is greater. His love for us is shown in His Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to set us free from our sins. Because Christ has set us free from our sins, we stand justified through faith alone. We are free to serve our earthly neighbors through our vocations. The liberal arts help us to see and meet our neighbor's needs by training us to rightly understand and order the good, the true, and the beautiful gifts God graciously gives to us here on earth. So there it is, brothers and sisters. Freed by Christ's love and sacrifice, we must be trained in order to order the true, the good, the beautiful, 
that God has given in ways to serve him and to serve our neighbors. Again, not an idea you're going to find on any class syllabus or lesson plan in any public school in America. So what exactly are these arts, and how do we apply them to this calling? Well, these arts are usually grouped into the arts of the trivium, logic, sorry, grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and the quadrivium, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. You might notice that the arts of the trivium have to do with language and communication, and the arts of the quadrivium are the mathematical arts. And yes, music is a mathematical art. Think about it. It's all done in time and in quarters and halves and sixteenths. But since ancient times, these were skills that equipped people to think, to reason, and to communicate clearly. Think about it. Grammar is the foundation to everything, not just language, but really building a solid foundation to all of our knowledge. Logic is the clear reasoning through language, and rhetoric is the skill in presenting and communicating great ideas. These skills are really essential in every field that people will go into. This is the epitome of teaching students how to think. Similarly, the mathematical arts are taught in both theory and in application, but with the purpose of training the mind for higher thinking, not just for base consumerism. And why are we training the minds for higher thinking? To better serve the duty of man, which is to love God and obey his commandments. Now, before you're worried that we're just teaching skills and not content, let's look at this last little bit of the definition of classical education. We're teaching these arts by using the great books. Of course, that starts with the greatest book, the Bible. But it also includes all the great works of the Western culture from earliest times to the present. For younger children, we may use children's versions of these, or we may use books that share these great ideas that have come down from the great books as these children are learning and developing the skills that will enable them to get into the primary texts. So our teaching is very book-centered and very old book-centered. What did C.S. Lewis say, a famous Anglican apologist? In the introduction that he wrote on the Incarnation by St. Athanasius, Lewis writes this, Naturally, since I myself am a writer, I do not wish the ordinary reader to read no modern books. But if he must read only the new or only the old, I would advise him to read the old. And I would give him this advice precisely because he is an amateur and therefore much less protected than the expert against the dangers of an exclusive contemporary diet. A new book is still on trial, and the amateur is not in a position to judge it. It has to be tested against the great body of Christian thought down the ages, and all its hidden implications, often unsuspected by the author himself, have to be brought to light. Often it cannot be fully understood without the knowledge of a good many other books. If you join at eleven o'clock, a conversation which began at eight, you will often not see the real bearing of what is said. Remarks which seem to you very ordinary will produce laughter or irritation, and you will not see why. The reason, of course, being that the earlier stages of the conversation have given them a special point. It is a good rule after reading a new book never to allow yourself, 
another new one until you have read an old one in between. If that is too much for you, you should at least read one old one to every three new ones. Every age has its own outlook. It is specially good at seeing certain truths and specially liable to make certain mistakes. We all, therefore, need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period. And that means old books. So says C.S. Lewis. And so this is why we focus our program a lot on books and especially on old books. But did you catch Lewis's most important point? Our understandings are hampered by only focusing on modern things. We're only hearing part of the great conversation. We're only understanding a fraction of the greater picture. By reading old books, we're hearing how God has interacted with his people throughout history and how we as a people have reacted. If we truly want to understand mere Christianity, another Lewis quote, it's helpful for us to understand what the mistakes as well as the triumphs of the past have been. This kind of understanding is going to be so important to our children as they navigate through the choppy waters of modernity. It may seem counterintuitive to use the past as a way to prepare for the future, but that's exactly what's necessary. Only by having the solid core of understanding both biblical truth and historic witness of the ages gone by will will give our children the preparation that they're going to need for the onslaught of misinformation that comes at them daily through television, the internet, and yes, even some of those modern books that Lewis warns about. So to summarize, Christian classical education is teaching for discipleship, teaching the skills that have been useful for mankind's learning since ancient times, and reading and teaching the great books. So. That's the kind of program that we're introducing at the Good Shepherd School Project. Now, why are we a school project instead of a school? Well, at this time, our program is working with families through a homeschooling model. We may become a licensed school in the future, but right now the Lord's asking us to bloom right where we're planted. And so we're operating more as a cooperative. And that means that all of our children must be registered homeschoolers. Now, the beautiful part of that is by declaring that you are homeschooling your child, you have officially told Clark County and the state of Nevada that you are in charge of your child's education and that you are your child's primary educator. Psst! Want to know a secret? You were that before you declared that to the state. That's one of the problems with our modern education system. They think that they own your child. They do not own your child. God does. He gave you a certain authority as a parent. As St. Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You are the God-given teacher for your child. Anyone who helps you educate your child doesn't own them. He or she is serving with you as a fellow minister of Christ for the raising up of a godly disciple. So if you are in the position where you cannot provide the kind of instruction that you would like to at this time, that that you would like to give that classical discipling education, that's what we're here for. Our ministry would partner with you four days a week to help provide your child's core curriculum. In this way, we could work with you to help you give your child the best education possible 
for building him or her up in the Lord. If you're already a homeschooler, we also have a program called our Atrium, and that's where we're offering extension classes for children who are already being homeschooled to complement and minister alongside parents who are already giving their children their core curriculum. What is an atrium? Well, an atrium is a gathering place, and in this context, it's a place for homeschoolers to gather as the faithful children of the Lord for some enrichment classes to complement their parents' doings. We do those four days a week, Mondays through Thursdays afternoon, teaching things like art, Greek, apologetics, history, geography. And yes, our partnership children can enjoy those classes as well as an extension of their core education. Speaking of Greek, one of the questions I get is why classical schools teach dead languages like Latin and Greek. Well, Greek, of course, is a biblical language, and we do teach Koine Greek, a good shepherd. And Latin is an important foundational language of English and the language that many of the church fathers wrote in. But more importantly, both these languages are so different from English that they really help children, even more than studying other modern languages, to understand what it's like to think in another culture. And this is critically important in this day and age where we have such an international culture, even right here in the Las Vegas Valley. God calls us in every language, calls us to witness to every people. In Revelation 5, we find, For you were slain and your blood ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And we need to prepare our children to minister to those people everywhere and in all contexts. I have no doubt, dear friends in Christ, we are being called to raise up children who can do that very thing. That's why we teach them as much as we can. Now, we can't teach them every language and culture in their formative years, although I got to tell you, our Greek mistress has like six languages under her belt, so we can come close. Only kidding. But of course, we can give them solid study of languages that will facilitate their understanding of language and culture and ministering to all people and all to the glory of God. Speaking of the glory of God, all of our sessions begin and end in worship. We believe that our gathering in worship is the most important thing that we do, and we encourage our children to participate in and to help lead worship daily. Worship is our calling as the people of God. And having our young people fully participate in the service of the Lord is formative. It forms their hearts and their minds on a daily basis. All of our services are taken from the Anglican Church in North America's Book of Common Prayer. The prayer book has often been described as scripture formatted for worship. It's set in a liturgy that helps to open our hearts and see the fullness of God in all things. The Anglican Church and our tradition comes from the Reformed tradition out of England, so it's many hundreds of years old, and still holds to many traditions that have been practiced throughout the ages. We order our worship throughout the day with morning prayer, midday prayer, evening prayer, and late evening prayer. And of course, three of those we'll be doing during the day with our young people. This is not the electronic bells system of modern education. This is ordering our days and ordering our lives around the worship of the Lord. If you'd like to know more about those services, 
or the Anglican Church in general, you can always visit anglicanchurch.net, which will tell you all that you need to know. And the whole prayer book, the Book of Common Prayer 2019, is under the resource tab in a PDF form. So feel free to take a look. Brothers and sisters, if you know families who are looking for a way to get their children out of the public schools and into a loving Christian educational environment, we may be able to help. Please pass on that we're here. We can help partner with families who wish to form children up as disciples and not consumers. We can help train children in virtue for truth, goodness, and beauty to the glory of God. Next time, we'll talk more about some particular aspects of classical education, how they differ from progressive education, and so that you can see a little more clearly the differences between how the world is training up your child and how the Lord asks us to train up his children. I hope that this has been a blessing to you. I hope that you have a marvelous weekend and a great week. We'll see you here next time, Friday at 8.30 a.m. And brothers and sisters, may you be blessed. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God, and may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each and every one of us evermore on into the ages. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us at the Christian Classical Corner. It's been a pleasure, and we hope that it's been a blessing for you. Want to learn more? Find out more about our school project at goodshepherdhenderson.info and more about our church, where you can support our ministry at vegasanglican.org. Thank you so much. Be blessed. And we'll see you next week, Friday, 8.30 a.m., for more talk on Christian classical education.